Okay, well, turn in your Bibles to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 6 says this, Therefore, as you received, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, in Christ, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That is a powerful, powerful passage, beloved. And this long section of verses 8 through 23 is a, is a section that we're going to be spending the next few weeks in, beginning today. You know, we haven't been in Colossians for a while, in about three months, so we need to do a bit of review this morning, okay? And uh, what we have in this passage that I just read, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 6, is a major transition to what we might call life in Christ. And I get this from the end of verse 6, look there, where Paul says, So walk in Him. That is the first command or the first imperative in the book of Colossians. And and it's going to be followed from chapter 2 verse 6 all the way to chapter 4 verse 6 by 27 other imperatives or other commands, 28 commands total that really develop what it means to walk in Christ all the way to chapter 4 and verse 6 before Paul closes the letter. Now Paul's command to walk in Christ at the end of verse 6, you know this, comes on the heels of all that he has said through chapter 2 and verse 5. And this is indicated by the word at the beginning of verse 6, therefore... 
Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And therefore points us back to everything that Paul has said in the opening chapter and a half of this great letter. If you remember back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Paul thanked God, the Father, for the work that he had performed in these, the lives of these Colossian believers. He's very thankful for them. He's thankful for all that God has done. They are believers who have had the transforming power of the gospel change them from within. They display faith and hope and love. And Paul is very thankful. And in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 1 then, in light of all that God has done for them, Paul prays for these believers. He prays that they would continue to grow into a deeper knowledge of God and His will. That they would continue to grow in, in, in walking worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit. And working righteousness for the glory of God, he prays for them. Of course, this fruitful life, Paul knows, especially in light of the heresy amongst them, will only happen as they look to Christ and they center their lives on the preeminent and supreme Christ. So that's why Paul, from chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, talks about the preeminence of Christ. They, he is to be the object of their affection. He is to be the one that their lives are to be centered upon. And so he he takes them to the mountain peak, if you will, and shows them the glory and the majesty of Christ, that their lives will be centered on Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, Paul uses himself in his own gospel ministry as a case in point, as one who centered his, his ministry and his life on Christ. It was all about Christ and exalting Christ for the Apostle Paul. And it's almost as if he says, look at my own ministry. It is all about proclaiming Christ and seeing men come to a greater knowledge of Christ and be conformed to Christ. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in light of Paul's testimony in his own ministry, Paul expresses his heartfelt desire in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that they would be encouraged. And that can only happen as they center their lives on Jesus Christ, who, as he says in chapter 2 and verse 3, is the reservoir in whom in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants them to be encouraged, but this can only happen as their lives are centered on Christ and as they keep their eyes fixed upon Christ, following after His will for their lives. And in light of this, Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, in light of everything that I have just said, so walk in Him. In other words, you've made the essential commitment of receiving Christ. We might call that conversion, the embracing of Christ. Him taking home in our hearts as we turn from our sins and we trust Him as the only Savior from our sins. You have received Christ, now continue pursuing to live and lead your life in accordance to Christ. And Paul is going to get very, very practical in the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1. But before that, in verses 8 through 23, which we read this uh, just a little short while ago, Paul wants to warn these believers. Because if you remember, Epaphras, <clears throat> who had been sent from Colossae to visit Paul, who is presently on house arrest, had reported that there were those who were teaching and promoting a sort of syncretistic, philosophical, religious system. We don't know exactly with precision... There been, has been much written about the exact heresy in Colossae. We don't know the exact, precise nature of this false teaching, but all we can do is glean elements of this false teaching from the text. 
That there were aspects of philosophy, according to verse 8, as we're going to see here in chapter 2. That there were aspects of Jewish legalism in verses 16 through 17. That there were aspects of mysticism in verses 18 through 19 of chapter 2. And that there were aspects of asceticism, the refraining from certain activities in verses 20 through 23. Whatever the heresy and the teaching was precisely, exactly, this false teaching, beloved, was an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. That's what it was. Whatever form it takes, even in our own lives, whatever movement we follow after, whatever isms we pursue, all of those things are ultimately an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. That's what it was for the Colossians. That as Christians, Jesus was all that they needed and they were in danger of going away from Jesus. Not finding their completeness in Christ. And so Paul in verses 8-23 through is going to warn them of the danger of being led away from Christ and following after this false teaching with all its elements that are anti-God and anti-Christ. Beloved, the warning to be led away to the Colossian believers from Christ is as applicable today as it was for them. Isn't that true? There will always be competing systems of thought raised up against the knowledge of Christ, challenging our loyalty to the Savior. These challenges, these systems of thought could be of a religious nature with world religions that lead us away from Christ and finding our sufficiency in another object of worship. These systems of thought can come in the sense of, uh, as a scientific Science can lead us away from that when we begin to believe that somehow the scientific method is more credible than what God's Word says. And these particular systems of thought raised up against the knowledge of Christ can have come in the form of our culture. Our culture promotes things like popularity all over the place. Fame, materialism, immorality, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, transgenderism fornication, adultery, all of those things. The American dream as the ultimate goal of life. As if these things can ever satisfy the human heart. Now listen, we do ourselves a disservice, do we not? And that we often look at those things, all of those external sins, very superficially on surface levels. And we forget about the fact That all of these external activities and external sins, beloved, no matter what their manifestation may be, come or flow from a particular undergirding of philosophy, a thinking pattern or thinking patterns. And then they are expressed externally into all of those particular things. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to show you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So you could see... What the Christians' ultimate war is against. It is not even those external sins and those things that we can pursue. It's far, far deeper than that, beloved. We often focus on the external activities. But there is something much, much deeper. There's a philosophy that undergirds this. Everything. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war According to the flesh. In other words, according to visible things. According to physical things, he says. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
What's he talking about? Physical mountains? What is he getting at? Look at verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What Paul is talking about here, beloved, is thinking fortresses. Thinking fortresses. Because visible sins come from anti-God thinking patterns, you understand. We're talking about mindsets. Mindsets. And our job as believers is to do hostile takeovers, if you will, and capture those, those sinful thoughts and sinful thinking patterns and submit them to obedience to Christ and to His Word. Otherwise, they are going to manifest themselves externally in our lives into destructive sins. But the problem is within the thinking patterns, the philosophical fortresses, ideological fortresses, if you will. It is mental fortresses that Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 10. Philosophical fortresses. Go back to Colossians. All of these things, beloved, my point come from a philosophy, thinking patterns that undergird them. What is philosophy? What is philosophy? Philosophy is comprised of two words. Phileo, which means love, and Sophia, which means wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. And people, whether back in Paul's day or even today, leading up to today, have defined philosophy in many different ways. But I like how John Frame defines philosophy. He defines philosophy this way. Quote, the disciplined attempt to articulate and defend a worldview. And he goes on, a worldview is a general conception of the universe. The term worldview, therefore, is an appropriate designation for the subject matter of philosophy, end quote. So when we talk about philosophy, we're talking about our worldview. And I like his definition, our outlook on life, the lenses, if you will, through which we see life. And the ideologies that drive that. In Paul's day, philosophy was broadly concerned with the origin, the meaning, and the purpose of life, the nature of God, as well as the future and the end toward which everything was moving. It hasn't changed a whole lot today. Those are some of the aspects of philosophy even in our day. But my point is this, beloved. Listen, our philosophy or worldview fuels our behavior. Did you hear that? Our philosophy or worldview, our thinking patterns, those ideological fortresses that are in us, that we, um, that we pet over the years, fuels our conduct, our lives, how we lead our lives, the priorities that we keep, the goals that we set for our lives, how we utilize our resources, how we spend our time. All of these things are driven and motivated by our philosophy or our world view. And so it follows, if you think about it, that if Satan was going to cause you to be led astray or if Satan wants people to be led astray, what is he going to go after? Your mind. Your mind. Your world view. He wants to delude your thinking because then he can destroy you and in destructive practices. But it begins in your mind. He wants to shape our thinking, our outlook on life regarding what is real and true and reliable and dependable. And in a nutshell, this is what was happening with the Colossian believers. 
Paul is warning them in verses 8 through 23 of the danger of false teaching that if followed will lead them away from Christ. And Paul was confident that they would not succumb to this. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. He's confident. He believes the best about them. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul believes the best about these believers because they have the Spirit of God working within them. But the warnings here are real. They're real. And we shouldn't rob them of that. He's a faithful shepherd who wants to warn them. And in verses 8 through 15, he warns them specifically against philosophy contrary to Christ. And we're going to be, begin to look at uh, verses 8 through 15 this morning and look at, specifically at philosophy. In verses 16 through 17, Paul warns them against legalism that detracts from Christ. In verses 18 through 19, Paul warns them against mysticism that is devoid of Christ. And in verses 20 to 23, Paul warns them against asceticism detached from vibrancy in Christ. So today we're going to be start, at least start to look at verses 8 through 15. And through this whole portion of Colossians, as we will see over and over again, Paul wants the Colossians to know that Christ is sufficient, beloved. In fact... In verses 8 through 15, he reminds them of the beautiful truth of Christ's sufficiency, and he does it in a very specific way. He does it by contrasting worldly philosophy in verse 8 with the all-sufficient Christ in verses 9 through 15. Worldly philosophy is contrasted with Christ that we would realize that He alone is all that we need, beloved. And that's what I want to remind us over and over again as we see the rest of this chapter and especially as we begin today to look at verses 8 through 15. Jesus is sufficient. He is all that we need. And philosophy leads to nothing. Nothing. Striving after when it is vain. So let's look first of all at the danger of worldly philosophy. The danger of worldly philosophy in verse 8. Look at what he says there. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Where does it come from? According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul wants to expose in verse 8 philosophy to remind us that in comparison to Christ, philosophy falls far short of the all-sufficient Redeemer and Savior, beloved. That's what he does. And he cuts to the chase, as you saw there in verse, the beginning of verse 8. He pulls no punches. He says, see to it. See to it. He says, it's, an, it's an, a command. It's an exhortation to them. Translated, look out. Watch out. Beware, he says. The structure there in verse 8 gives the sense of a real impending danger. In fact, the verb see to it is in the present tense, which points to the need to be continually on the lookout, continually aware to not be led astray from Christ. And as we look at verse 8, and that exhortation to beware of this impending danger, we're given four reasons, sort of as subpoints for you, four reasons why worldly philosophy is dangerous. And I want us to look at these together. Four reasons why worldly philosophy is dangerous. First of all, worldly philosophy 
is dangerous because it enslaves people. Because it enslaves people. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. That no one takes you captive. The word captive there is, means to capture, to sack, to plunder, or to carry off as booty or spoil. In ancient times, when a nation conquered another nation, most of the defeated were killed. But others were carried off as spoil, as reward, as booty, and they were made slaves of the victorious army. Now they were to serve their enemy. And that is the picture here. Paul says, don't let this happen. Don't be enslaved all over again. Because if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 13, notice what the Father has done for us. He says, for He, the Father from verse 12, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God the Father performed a rescue operation for us as believers and freed us from the domain of darkness that we would no longer dwell there, beloved. We found forgiveness of sins and we would bought out of slavery to sin to be freedom, to, to the freedom of the children of God. Amen? That's what God the Father did. And Paul is saying, don't be taken captive. God has already rescued you from darkness. Why is it that you want to run that direction? Beware of philosophy that takes you away from the kingdom of God. This exhortation in verse 8 is similar to the exhortation in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. And there, Paul says to the Galatian believers, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And there in Galatians, the yoke of slavery was, was these, these false teachers saying, you need Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus adherence to certain aspects of the Mosaic law. Christ is needed, but you need something more. Paul says, no, don't be enslaved to those things, beloved Galatian believers. Christ has set you free. Stand firm in your freedom. That's the same idea of what Paul is getting at here in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Now think about what Paul is saying as well. When you succumb to worldly philosophy, you don't gain freedom. You don't gain liberty. You become that philosophy's slave. If it's drawing you away from Christ, then you become that philosophy's slave. You no longer serve Christ. You serve that particular thinking pattern and all the expressions of it will manifest themselves inevitably in your life and in your conduct. You know, it's interesting. I've been reading some material lately that talks about the fact that in our postmodern culture today, our young people more than ever before Our young people are being told today that for their Christian parents to pass on their Christian faith to them is oppressive. It is oppressive. It is bondage. It is enslavement to pass on your Christian faith to your kids with the hope that they would embrace that Christian faith and be redeemed from within and that they would be different in their lives. It is oppressive, says a postmodern culture. You shouldn't do it because your young people should have the freedom to think for themselves, should have the liberty to think for themselves. You know what? It's completely the opposite, isn't it? The faith that we are passing on to you young people, listen to me, actually liberates you. It liberates you from slavery to sin. 
from patterns that will lead to your destruction eternally, not only on this earth. What happens on this earth is the least of your worries. Eternally, eternal separation from God. The faith that your parents are passing on to you as they open up the Word of God to you and preach the Gospel to you and share about Christ and the fact that He can deliver you from your sins is actually freedom. Freedom from slavery to sin and satanic slaughter, if you will. It is completely the opposite of postmodern thinking. But that's the philosophy and the mood of the age. Don't oppress your young people with your Christian faith. Don't do that. See, any human philosophy that leads you away from Christ is actually bondage. When you succumb to worldly philosophy, you actually become its slave. And that's the picture that Paul is giving here. That's the implication that that if you embrace worldly philosophy, you cease to be a servant of Christ. And now you are slave of Satan and his evil world system. And we need to have our eyes open to these realities, beloved. These thinking patterns of our postmodern culture today are destructive. They're destructive. That's why we need to be preaching the Word of God. Amen? Bringing the truth to bear upon a culture that doesn't want to hear about what is real and reliable and trustworthy, centered on the God-man, Jesus Christ. This culture doesn't want to hear about that. This is why cults are so, so dangerous. Right? So dangerous. Cults take, take weak people captive. They hold them, they hold a tight grip on those who adhere to their teaching, binding their consciences to things that have nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with His Word and real, genuine Christianity from the heart. We need to be very careful. Weak people who are not biblically centered. Remember just a few weeks ago we talked about the importance of being a Bible-centered people. A Bible-centered people who are, who are looking to, to God's Word as a source of our wisdom, beloved, in our lives. And, and, and looking at Christ and Him exalted in all of His fullness that we would be driven to cherish Him and manifest in our lives holiness and obedience. We looked at the fact that we need to be Bible-centered people. Think about this. If you are not a Bible-centered believer, then you are susceptible and vulnerable to cult-like movements that ultimately enslave. You are. Sound doctrine is so crucial in the church. Sound biblical teaching continually. Because sound doctrine leads to, when followed, sound living in our, in, in, in our Christian walk. Very important. Secondly, worldly philosophy is dangerous. Not only because it enslaves, but because it is misleading. It is misleading. Look at verse 8. See to it, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. In the original, the definite article governs both philosophy and empty deception. This can be translated like this in verse 8. The philosophy which is empty deception. Or the philosophy even empty deception. That is what Paul is getting at here. Philosophy is empty deception. Empty, he calls it. Vain. Hollow. Striving after wind. Empty means that it lacks spiritual value and substance. And thus it is unprofitable and unfruitful for you. When embraced. He says empty deception. Deception not true. Not reliable. Not trustworthy. 
Worldly thinking, beloved, is like a baited hook that draws in the fish so that that fish sees that bait and bites and it is cut. And that fish thinks that it's going to be receiving food, but that fish becomes the nourishment instead. That is the way that worldly philosophy deceives. You think you're going to get something out of it, but it doesn't deliver the goods, does it? If it's, it's, rather, it's opposed to Christ. No matter how good something sounds, how much it promises young people and for all of us, it does not deliver the goods if it doesn't lead you to Christ. It just doesn't. Like the prosperity gospel preachers of today, right? And that movement who appeal to the American philosophy of comfort, of ease, and happiness, and that Christians should never have any trials or sufferings, they want you to think that they have the inside scoop on God's healing power and performing miracles and an easy life that doesn't have any suffering. All you got to do is give them your money, right? That's all you got to do. Send me some money, and you will have free access to the inside knowledge and power to make sure that you have a suffering-free life. It is a lie. It is destructive. It is misleading. That is satanic, worldly philosophy that promises people happiness and prosperity, and listen to me, all the while robbing Christ of His glory and His all-sufficiency in the life of the believer. That's what it does. It misleads people away from Jesus Christ. Worldly philosophy is misleading. Thirdly, worldly philosophy is dangerous because it is man-made. Man-made. Look at verse 8. What is the source of this philosophy? He says in verse 8, it is according to the tradition of men. According to the tradition of men. That word tradition means the act of giving over from one to another. The passing on of one thing to another person. In a long line, if you will. These false teachers, when you think about Colossians in particular, these false teachers were were saying that they had the inside scoop on special, deeper, divine knowledge. But Paul says, you know where this philosophy comes from, Colossians? Ultimately, it comes from man. It is man-made. It doesn't originate with God. You know what it is? It is ignorance perpetuated. That's what it is. I still remember my first, my second year of junior college, sitting in a logic uh, class, um, particularly logic. And, and we had this long discussion where the professor was just pontificating about the origin of the universe. And he finally arrived at the conclusion, the fact that God couldn't have created the universe if indeed he even existed. And a student uh, put their hand up and they weren't a believer, but they asked, professor, how do you know that these things are true? Like, like what, what, what credibility do you have? And he actually said this, well, if many great people and great philosophers believe something to be true, then it must be true. Really? Mark Pekai, would that fly in your, in your uh, setting? <laughs> no, it doesn't. One philosopher passing on his ignorant philosophy to another person doesn't make it true, right? There's no virtue in perpetual ignorance. There's nothing new under the sun. And just because a bunch of people who have been deceived for centuries and centuries pass on the same tradition to another person doesn't make it true and it doesn't bring credibility to their arguments, beloved. Test them in accordance with the Word of God. Amen? That's what we need to do. Empty philosophy is the product of human opinion and speculations and it doesn't lead to the truth. 
In fact, Jesus, if you remember, rebuked the religious leaders for teaching and binding others to their traditions rather than to the word of God. By Jesus' time, the Pharisees had even added many, many rules and laws to the law of God. And even their own hermeneutical system, their system of interpretation. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had to correct their destructive traditional hermeneutic. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart already. He was correcting their their traditional, erroneous, hermeneutical principles. Even he saw this as destructive. As these individuals, the Pharisees in particular, were binding the consciences of people in accordance with their own traditions. That's how destructive human philosophy is, beloved. Fourthly, worldly philosophy is dangerous because it is primitive. Worldly philosophy is dangerous because it is primitive. It is fundamental. It is basic, if you will. It is elementary. Listen, so many so-called professors of philosophy boast of great knowledge and pontificate of great things, but ultimately they are dealing with very basic elemental realities. Look at what he says in verse 8, that the content of this philosophy is according to the elementary principles of the word. According to the elementary principles of the world, rather. And there are various views of what Paul means by elementary here. Many, many different views. On the one hand, he could be referring to spiritual beings here. That's what he might be talking about. And I think that that there might be some truth to that. Because later on, in verses 15 and 18, when he speaks of spiritual beings and the worship of angels, I think this false teaching had an aspect of the worship of spiritual beings and mysticism, if you will. But the word could also refer to the essential basic principles of a particular field of study. For example, listen to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. The writer says there, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. The meaning there is that you have need again for the spiritual ABCs, if you will. The elementary things. The basic things. And I think that's the basic meaning that Paul has in mind here in verse 8. Though I think later on there are aspects of those spiritual beings that we will deal with in this false teaching. What Paul is getting at is that while these false teachers boasted of mature, deeper, inner knowledge, their teaching is actually ABC elementary stuff. And it falls far short of what God Himself offers in Christ Jesus. That's what He means. Beloved, worldly philosophy is primitive and it is dangerous. Dangerous. And listen, when people give in to worldly philosophy, they are driven to all kinds of foolishness. All kinds of foolishness. Some of us have even lived out that foolishness before we came to know Christ. And we can't even believe the things that we were into. There are those these days, if you don't believe me, who wanting to break free from the bonds of human responsibility and a growingly complex society are running away and escaping real human life to be part of the animal kingdom. Would you believe that? There are individuals like that 
who are trying to run away from responsibility. This earth is becoming more complex. We're fearful of what is happening. Things are becoming worse and worse and worse. It seems that the animal kingdom, there is such simplicity and basic elementary, elemental life. I want to go toward that particular area of life. They are taking the statement, you are acting like an animal literally. And in case you think I'm, I'm off my, my rocker here, I brought an example of this for you. Okay. The writer of this article says, you're acting like an animal. For most people, that statement is a terrible put-down. For two men recently profiled in The New Yorker, it would be the greatest of compliments. The goat man. Thomas Thwaites was fed up with the stress and hurry of life. He longed to live in the eternal present of his niece's Irish terrier, Noggin. To smell the grass, the wind, and the water without worrying about the future, the past, the meaning of life, or the inevitability of death. How much simpler to be an animal. Thwaites settled on becoming a goat. And so he focused on three areas. The goat mind, the goat body, and the goat diet. To understand the mind, first of all, he learned from goat behavior experts and read the philosopher Martin Heidegger in order to, quote, inhabit the mental life of a goat, end quote, by relating to his surroundings in a goat-like way. Rothman sums up Thwaites' thinking this way. I need to change my context, he resolved, to the extent that somehow I look at a chair and don't automatically associate it with sitting. He would have achieved a goathood when he could see a word without reading it. Or more important, look at another goat and think of it as a, another person like himself. End quote. Trying to take on a goat-like body was even more difficult. A prosthetist warned him that undertaking goat-like movements would hurt him. But Thwaites eventually climbed atop the quartet of Sonoff crutches and managed to mimic the gait of a goat. The biggest challenge was goat food. Humans cannot digest grass, so Thwaites had to find cellulose for his artificial goat rumen. Once he felt he had sufficiently succeeded at adopting the goat's mind and body and diet, he went to Switzerland and joined a goat herd. (laughs) On his hands and feet, he wore his goat prosthesis. I think that's the way you pronounce that, artificial body parts. On his back, a uh, goat-colored Gore-Tex jacket. On his head, a helmet designed to give him, at first glance, the face of a goat. In the end, Thwaites spent three days grazing with the goats. Later, the goat farmer to whom they belonged said he thought Thwaites had been accepted by the herd indeed. I'm telling you, you think that it's only about sophisticated philosophical systems? This guy is trying to escape reality. And go to a simple lifestyle, which is the animal kingdom. And he goes through all of this. I thought, what in the world are we doing on this earth? What is going on? And yet when you read the comments of people, they were so impressed. Oh, wow. This is amazing. How wonderfully pleasant, so profound, so freeing of what's going on in the world around us. Can you believe it? People will accept anything. Even this foolishness, right? Why do people pursue these things, beloved? Why? Why? Are you kidding me? I was thinking, 
But then I, why, what, is, what is at the heart of people doing these kinds of things? And I have other examples for you as we go through this series. Okay? That you're, it's very mind-boggling. I'm even tempted to not even bring them to the pulpit for crying out loud. Why do people do this? Why do people do this? The simple answer, of course, is, well, well sin. Sin leads to those kinds of things. And I would say, yes, sin. But you need to, you need to kind of unpack that, Right? Unpack that. What is, what is revealed in people doing these kinds of things, beloved, is people not running to God for the answers to life. See, people like this, they know that there is something not right. There's something about the world in which we live that just doesn't seem to meet uh, our needs. Something is broken. They recognize that, do they not? That there is something incomplete and they're trying to fill a void in their own hearts. Obviously, people are rebellious. But think about this. People run to idolatry and idolatrous methods like these rather than to God because they know that there's something missing. They're going after something that they think is going to complete them. That's what leads to such actions. And you know what? We must be driven. And what... Should, when we see examples like these and others in our society, what should be evoked is compassion, beloved, and mercy toward people, right? Were it not for the grace of God, you and I as believers would be in the same place, maybe doing other foolish things. So we should not look at these individuals and say, I would never do anything like that. We did other foolish things ourselves, right? It should evoke compassion. These people are dissatisfied with life and they should be beloved. Life does not deliver what it promises for them, so they have to run to other things. And that is where we are positioned more than anybody else to bring the truth of the gospel that can free people from slavery to sin in idolatrous ways and mindsets, beloved. Christ is the only one who can satisfy the human heart. He is the only one. And so we must preach the gospel, right? We must preach Christ to people. Jesus is the bread of life, is He not? Jesus is the bread of life. When you partake of Him, you will never hunger again. He satisfies the human heart, beloved. Jesus is the living water, is He not? He who drinks of Christ, embracing all that He is as the perfect God-man and the only sacrifice for your sins, and you trust in Him, you will never thirst again. He's the only one that can satisfy. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And our culture and our world needs to hear the gospel because they're running towards this kind of junk and many other things that don't satisfy, beloved. They don't satisfy. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Talk about Christ, the only one who is sufficient for all of our needs, beloved. Beginning with deliverance from the power and penalty of our sins. We must share Christ. He alone is sufficient. And of course, the only way that Christ's beautiful treasures are applicable to you is that you would turn, that you would repent from your sins, right? The only way that that applies to you if you're here and you have not given your life to Christ and you're pursuing all of these things, all of this foolishness, whatever shape it may be taking in your life, the only one who can satisfy you is Jesus, but you must surrender your sin and lay it at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, save me from my sins. You're the only one that is able to do that. 
And trust Christ. Trust Christ, who alone can forgive you. Through whom alone you can be acquitted of your guilt before a holy God. Listen, worldly philosophy is dangerous, beloved. And frankly, might I add this? It is vicious, isn't it? It leads to vicious behavior. Think of of radical Islam. Radical Islam and its proponents who think that walking into a gay club last weekend in Orlando and killing and injuring more than a hundred people is keeping with their cause. What drives that kind of massacre? A demented view of what God actually wants in accordance with his word, isn't it? Demented view. Radical Islam is one perfect example of that. And such an act as last weekend and many others that we've heard of or are happening in secret all over the place from radical Islam show us a philosophy that is motivated by tyranny and the dehumanization of people. That's what happened in Orlando. People being treated as less than humans and then forgetting about the fact that those people that were there were made in the image of God and life is to be honored and God is the only one who should be giving life and the only one who should be taking life. And we as believers, listen to me, we ought not to be having a critical spirit towards those who died or their families. We should be praying for them because we may not agree with their lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle, but we can agree on this, that God made those individuals in his image and life is to be preserved. And he's the only one that can take life away, beloved. We should pray for them and pray for their families and mourn with them and weep with them, you understand. We should love on those people and try to be as the church of God, as as a manifestation of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. Try to come alongside of them and, and equip them and serve them in any capacity that we possibly can. And I'm so thankful for so many believers who are doing that right now. In places like Florida and other places. Such actions, my point is this, come from wrong philosophical thinking, beloved. From destructive, destructive thinking patterns. In, this, in that case, radical Islam. Well, having shown us negatively the danger of worldly philosophy in verse 8, Paul now shows us the contrast, the majestic Christ. Okay, and we're going to begin verses 9 and following next week. I'm back at my pattern again, huh? covering one verse in Colossians. But hopefully that motivates you to be here next Sunday, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word that is sufficient, that points to the all-sufficient one, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to cherish him and to treasure him, and that we would be led, Lord, more and more in our lives to find our completeness in him. Help us to reject worldly philosophy that, is, that leads ultimately to bondage. When it doesn't lead us to Christ, it is misleading Lord, worldly philosophy is man-made. And worldly philosophy leads to all kinds of destructive behavior in our lives. Lord, help us. Help us to be people who embrace Christ and treasure Him above anything in this present culture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.